Father, we are told in your word that um, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are full of yours, that you may strongly support them. And we're living in a time, and we, we joke around and we kid around, but we are living in a time where so many people are looking for someone to support them. They're looking for someone to give to them. Uh, some are looking for a handout. Uh, some have a genuine need. Others don't. Others are just looking for the next free thing. You know hearts, and we don't. And you look at our hearts. And we are so grateful, Lord, that our place of dependency is not anywhere except upon you. That's really what it boils down to. And we are living in, in times that are uh, frightening, times that are threatening. We're not encouraged by what we see. I don't think anybody in here thinks things are going to turn around in the next 48 hours or in the next three weeks. This, this isn't going away. The news isn't getting better. And, and we're all seeing that and we're all sensing it. But our hope is in you. Period. We are saved from sin by faith in Christ alone. And we are sustained daily by faith in Christ alone. You are not only our Savior, you are our sustainer. You are our provider. You are our strong defense. You are our sovereign keeper. And that's why we have hope. And that's why we are not overwhelmed. And that's why we are not dominated by fear, regardless of what we're facing. These are the times that try men's souls. And to one degree or another, we are all being tried and we are all being tested. In these days of worry and anxiety and panic, help us to think clearly. First of all, help us to think. And then help us to think clearly. And help us to think biblically. And, and, and help us, Lord, not to rely on our company because that's just stupid. A company is just made up of people. And the guys at the top are as frightened at the guys at the bottom. Nobody has a clue, quite frankly. So our eyes are upon you. Not on a company, not on a plan, not on a particular party, but on you. We have never been disappointed by you, ever. No one in this room has been disappointed by you. We've had times when we didn't understand what you were doing. But you're good, and you do good. I encourage each guy here tonight. Some guys are facing some hard things physically. Others are under tremendous stress in their homes with a, with a spouse, with, with a child. And it's just ripping their guts out. There are a thousand different ways, Lord, that we are challenged and that we face giants. We look to you tonight. We look to you and we think about who you are. And we're fine. We really are. You got us through today. 
we're going to go home and hit the sack. And even as we're sleeping, you give to your beloved even in their sleep. And then we'll get up in the morning and there'll be new mercies waiting for us. Maybe not the ones we want, but the ones that we need. You know what you're doing. We are grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I used to think I was real open to change, but I'm not. I, I really used to view myself that way. And um, earlier this week, Mary said, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, how would you feel if I changed up the master bedroom, the configuration of everything? I said, great, fine. And uh, she said, okay. And... Um, so a couple days later, it was changed, and um, went to bed, and it was a little bit different than the way it had been for 11 years, but that's all right. And I woke up at 4.30 in the morning, and Mary's light was on, and she's moving lamps. And I, and I said, I said, Mary, I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm, this plug doesn't work, and I'm trying to get this. And I said, you know, is there any way you could do that, like, like during daylight hours? Because it's 4.30. And she said, well, I know, it's just going to be a minute. Well, it wasn't a minute. And then she's moving this lamp, and then it knocked over the clock, and it just, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to sleep. What, 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 is the, what is the urgency here? 4.30 in the morning to be plugging in lamps. I'm still a little hacked off, to tell you the truth about it. Because you know what? That doesn't make any sense to me. And, 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 and suddenly, uh, the energy level went up there as I expressed that, didn't it? And that's what happened. The longer she's screwing around with these light plugs, I'm not rested, I'm not relaxed, I'm getting irritated. And, and, and I said, Mary, Mary, what the heck are you doing? It's 4.30 in the morning. And, and, and she said, I don't want to bother you. I said, you're bothering me. <laughs> she said, well, Steve, I'm starting to get a migraine, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to bother you. But she has this little infrared thing, and, and it works for her. And if she puts that all over her forehead before it, it really gets strong, it, it nails it. And as soon as she said that, I said, oh, um, what can I do to help you? Because we'd moved things around, and the plug, her side, the plug wasn't working. We'd never used that plug before. So she's trying to put an extension cord. Anyway. Now, see, when she gave me that information, it changed everything for me. Just prior, though, to that piece of information, I was seriously thinking of beheading her. <laughs> Since that seems to be okay now. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll let Gary Bauer just summarize it in his little newsletter. Last week, a disturbing story broke in New York when, I won't get this name right, uh, Muzamil Hassan was arrested for murder. According to various reports, Hassan beheaded his wife, Asiya, after she filed for divorce. This is in New York. Her divorce attorney stated that her claim was based on cruel and inhumane treatment and numerous violent altercations with her husband during their eight-year marriage. A week prior to her death, she had obtained a restraining order against her husband that forced him out of their house. The disturbing irony in this case is that Hassan ran a television station called Bridges TV, devoted to building bridges of, of friendship and understanding. 
by portraying a peaceful and positive view of Islam to American audiences. Hassan once complained that the level of ignorance regarding Muslims and Islam is very high in the United States. Some Muslim groups are trying to portray this incident as just another example of domestic violence, but not everyone is buying it. Um, uh, horrific, horrific thing. You know, but you know what's even more horrific? How many of you guys heard about this? All right, how many of you guys didn't? I didn't see this on the front page of the newspaper. This hasn't been, I read more about a chimp than I read about this. Now, what's interesting, if this guy had been a Southern Baptist pastor, you would have heard about it. Oh, I mean, you would have heard about it. Front page, 24-hour, 7 news cycle, it never would have gone off. Never, never would it. You, you know that. It's, it's just kind of funny how the playing field has shifted and how it's changed. Last week, we were talking about the, the borders of masculinity. And we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'd like you to turn there with me. And the reason we were going over there is that we have been studying the giants. We've been studying Joshua and Caleb because really they're the guys that have shown us how to fight the giants. Uh, if, if, if you've been with us, you know the whole drill. I mean, Dana knew it, and she hasn't even been with us. Uh, she knew it was out of Numbers 13. She said, spies? Exactly. That's Numbers 13. And what happened in Numbers 13? They're going into the promised land, coming out of Egypt. God says, pick 12 guys, one from each tribe. They do a reconnaissance mission. They come back. Of those 12 spies... We only know of Joshua and Caleb, the other 10 yo-yos, we don't know a thing about. We don't name them. We don't think about them. We're not interested in them because they were a bunch of losers, although they were leaders. And, and why is it that we are not interested in those guys? Well, because they came back. They panicked the people. They said, it's a great land, but there are giants in the land. They're right. There's a literal race of giants, Anakim, in the land. They're known as long necks. And they said, we can't take these guys. Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, God will fight for us. See, if you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to fight the giants. And you just don't fight the giants one or two times in your life. The Christian life is a series of going from one giant to the next, to the next, to the next. The Bible says that we are meant, we, we go from faith to faith. And what that means is we go from giant to giant. Every time you face a giant, you get scared. It's funny how this works. Not funny, haha. It's funny, the irony of it. Because if, if we were to break up into small groups and take 20 minutes and, and take five guys and say, just go around and say, hey, you know, what's your giant? Here's my giant. Every guy in that small group, you take five guys, you probably have five guys fighting five different giants. But they're all experiencing fear and anxiety and worry and concern and intimidation because that's what giants do. Uh, that's, been, that's been our study. But one of the things we did last week is that we, we took a step back because in order to fight the giants... There's got to, there has to be some character qualities in your life. And when we have looked at Joshua and Caleb, we have seen these character qualities in their life. And some of them we've observed, some of them we've pointed out. Others, we just kind of, you just kind of pick up about these guys. You kind of sense some things about them as you study them for several months. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gives some some borders, if you will, some um, uh, parameters on how it is that he wants the men in Corinth to handle themselves. And he, he gives them four things. He says, I want you to be on the alert. Why do you need to be on the alert? Because we're in a war. We're in a spiritual war. 
If you name the name of Christ, if you love Christ, then you have an enemy that hates you. That's Ephesians chapter 6. If you're not interested in Christ, if you are or, or just a church guy or just kind of so-so, um, you're not having trouble with the enemy because you're neutralized. You're not making an impact. You're, you're not leading your family. You're, you're, you're not seeking Christ first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things you'll be. You're not seeking him first. He might be sixth or seventh or eighth. But if he's not first, you're not going to come under much attack because you're already out of the picture. You're already neutralized. But when he's first, you're going to, you're going to be in war. So when you're in war, what do you need to do? Well, you need to be, you need to be alert. You need to be like a sentry. You've you got to have your senses on, on turbocharge because there's an enemy that wants to bring you down. The second thing he says to him is stand firm in the faith. Uh, we, we, we are living in days where men want their ears to be tickled. It's amazing to me how many large ministries, they're huge. They're huge. And what are they doing? Quite frankly, they're just tickling the ears. There's not sound doctrine. It's about, it's a, it's about a half inch deep and it's real wide. It might be worldwide. But there's not a lot of stuff there because that's what's popular today. But when you're in a war and, and you've got stuff coming at you right and left and you're facing giants, how in the world are you going to stand firm in the faith instead of cutting and running? The only way you stand firm in the faith is to know the Word of God and to have your feet planted on the Word of God. When that tsunami hit, what, four or five years ago at Christmas? You guys remember those images that started coming across the screen? Uh, I, the, probably the most famous one is of that outdoor resort. Kind of had that Tahiti look and that, you, you, you know, the roof. It was open on all sides, but sort of that grass roof thing, you know what I'm talking about? And the railing, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that water just, and those suckers are climbing the railing. You remember that? The one I'll never forget, though, about that tsunami was, was the one guy on the beach by himself, and nobody else was around early in the morning. Obviously, someone had a video camera up on a bluff, and it was a pretty wide-ranging shot, and it was a beautiful shot. Beautiful, tropical beach. Nobody, nobody around. Just this one guy up early in the morning walking on the beach with his head down. Some guy from Norway or, I don't know where he's from, Denmark or Omaha. I don't know where the sucker was from, but he's, he's, he's out of the snow. He's, out, he's down there just... Probably read the brochure. Man, that looks great. He's up early, just walking that beach by himself, deep in thought. You saw this. He was gone. He was gone. Hmm. Stand firm in the faith. Because this stuff that we're dealing with can knock you over and, and, and your life is suddenly out of control unless you're standing firm in faith, which is the word of God. Thirdly, uh, see, this is what men are supposed to do. This is, this is what we need men to do. We need men to be on the alert. We need men to... Stand firm in the faith. We need men to act like men. We really do. And the idea here is, is, is one of courage. Be courageous. Men are supposed to be courageous. Women and children first. At least that's the way it's always been. 
You're supposed to act like a man. You don't get in the life raft and tell the ladies to wait. You get in. And, and fourthly, he says, be strong. So we, we, we milked this thing last week. But that's all in verse 13. What I didn't mention was verse 14. I really didn't have the time to mention it. But, but there is one more imperative in the next verse that, that balances out all of these things. Because it is easy as a man to get out of balance. It, it's, it's easy with the whole thing of masculinity, of being a husband, with being a father. Because when you're a man... Uh, you're bigger than a woman, you're stronger than a woman. You're bigger than your wife, you're bigger than your kids. And what happens with some men, when men are given authority, some guys can't handle authority. You ever work for a guy who was given authority and he wasn't ready for it? That is a hor- horrible experience. Because the sucker becomes a tyrant. And he doesn't listen, and he's defensive, and nobody can tell him anything, and he's just... It, it, it's really a, it's, it's not what you, want to, what you want to do. Some men as husbands and fathers, Christian husbands and fathers, uh, become tyrants. They, they become little dictators. And it's hell to be raised in a house by somebody like that. And it's also extremely confusing. For a man to have power, but for a man not to have power over his power. God has all power. But the great thing about God is that God has power over his power. And as we are men of God, we learn to have power over our power because it's easy for men to get out of balance and to get out of control. The last few weeks, I've met a couple of guys that have stood out to me. Uh, One guy was here um, on a Wednesday night, and uh, he's a pastor, and he's real involved with prison fellowship. Uh, but he was in prison in Texas for 17, 18 years. And he was um, the top guy in one of the Mexican gangs. And when God began to do a work in his life, uh, he wasn't real popular. And the number of death threats and the number of attempts he's had on his life have been absolutely astonishing. And God continues to preserve him, and God continues to use him. Uh, there was a transformation that, that took place, that took place in his life. Uh, I met another guy when I was in the Bay Area last weekend. And I walk in to do this conference, and this, this Hispanic guy comes up, looked about five, six, but built like a bowling ball. I mean, he really was. I mean, this sucker, he could have hurt you. And just tattoos, just tattoos everywhere. And he goes, hey, Steve, you remember me? <laughs> I should have. I said, you know, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't remember. He said, you don't remember me? I said, no. He said, when you came here two years ago, I said, I said, I sort of remember you. I said, I'm being honest. You want me to be honest? He goes, yeah. I said, you know, I don't have as much memory in my hard drive as I used to have. But he said, you remember we talked about this after the thing? And I go, I said, I remember you now. I said, you were in prison. He goes, yeah, I was in San Quentin. I said, how many years were in there? He goes, oh, man, I was in and out probably seven, eight, nine years. I said, then the Lord got a hold of you, didn't he? He goes, oh, man. He said, it's unbelievable. The guy used to be hell on wheels. And, and you know what? The guy has a joy that just emanates from him. Just a joy. Because he's been totally transformed because the power of God got a hold of him, and now all that violence and all that anger and all that rage, see now there's power over that power that can be used in a wrong way. Men have got to be balanced. Masculinity has got to be balanced. So that's why in that next verse in 14, after saying, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, um, be courageous, be strong, what's the next verse say? Let all that you do be done in love. There is a difference between Christianity and Islam. And let me give you a couple, a couple of the... Number one, uh, Christianity is true, and Islam 
is counterfeit. And let me say something else. Christianity is superior to Islam. Christianity is superior to any other religious teaching in all the world. And see, that doesn't go over real big in our culture because we're into this multicultural thing. What does multiculturalism mean? I remember when I lived in the Bay Area, and I remember driving down the Bayshore Freeway, 101, right down by San Carlos, Redwood City, and I'm listening to KCBS News Radio, and there's this thing comes over the radio and says, Stanford University announced today that no longer will they be teaching Western civilization classes. I'm sure most people thought, oh, you know, fine. You remember taking Western Civ? And you know, most guys that teach Western Civ can't teach. I mean, that, isn't that a shame? Most guys that teach history can't teach. Uh, I mean, I took history. It was always the football coach. I mean, he's outlining the wishbone. I mean, that's all he's interested in. But, but history's fascinating. Uh, you know, no big deal. Western civil, Western civ. That was boring. Actually, Western civilization. Why do they used to teach that? Because see, there's a difference between Western civilization and every other civilization. And quite frankly, we used to think Western civilization was superior. But, but that wasn't politically correct because, you see, we have this multiculturalism thing. What does that mean? It means all cultures are equal. It means Columbus should not have told the Indians about Jesus. That's what it means. No, he should have told them about Jesus because they were pagans and they didn't know Christ. See, multiculturalism said, oh, the missionaries came to Hawaii and told them about Christ. They, shouldn't have done it. they should have done it. But see, that's the nonsense of our culture. It's the absolute nonsense. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's why they hate Christianity. Because it's exclusive. Um... Does, does God say we're, we're fighting spiritual battles? Yeah. Does God want us to protect our families? Yeah. Does he want us to be on the alert? Yeah. Does he want us to be strong? Yeah. Does he want us to stand firm in our faith? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Does he want us to cut off our wives' heads when we don't like what they do? No. No. Because he's the one true God and he's revealed himself in his word. So we live differently as men than other men do. Now, when you bring up this verse, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. We've gotten screwed up in the evangelical church. We really have. And we talked about this last week, the feminization of men. And, and what has happened in the church is that we have gotten this definition of manliness that basically in a lot of people's minds simply means that when it says here, let all that you do be done in love, uh, basically that should mean that you're always gentle and soft-spoken and you're always easy to get along with and you're just, you know, doggone it, you're just a nice guy. All the time, you're just a nice guy. And you know, you don't make waves. You just get along. Can't you just get along? I mean, why can't we all just get along? Well, because you're wrong. <laughs> That's why we can't get along. Oh, but unity is so important. You know, actually it isn't. <coughs> you know what's more important than unity? is truth. Now, now, if we can agree on truth, we can have unity. But you see, if you're not open to truth and you're not a truth teller, guess what? I don't want to be unified with you. In fact, I want to oppose you and stand against you. Well, that's not loving, some Christians would say. Actually, it is. But we've gotten so warped in our view of masculinity that we have no room. I've been reading... Uh, John Piper writes these little books. Uh, he does a pastor's conference up at his church in Minneapolis. 
And when he does the pastor's conference every year, he usually does a, a series of biographic, or at least one biographical talk on some guy out of church history that was really used by the Lord. And uh, he has this series of, uh, of books that he puts out called The Swans Are Not Silent. And this is book four. And in this book, and I was reading it again last week, he talks about three guys, three short biographies of Athanasius, uh, a guy named John Owen, and another guy named J. Gresham Machen. Now, Athanasius uh, was a guy in early church history that basically stood up against the heresy that Jesus was created. That Jesus was created. And it was huge in the early church. And the guy that he was opposing was a real winsome guy that everybody really liked, and he kind of swayed people because he was real smooth, and everybody kind of liked the guy. And Athanasius would not back up. Uh, John Owen was used by God in England. And John Owen was a brilliant, brilliant theologian. And he, uh, he was always involved in controversy, always. J. Gresham Machen was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he believed that the Bible, he believed that the Word of God was inerrant. And he stood on that and he taught it. Because that had been taught at Princeton Seminary for years and years. But in the early 1900s, they threw him out. They threw him out of the, of the seminary. They threw him out of the denomination. And he was hated. He was, he was a hated man. Why? Because he stood up for the Word of God. Uh, I, I found it interesting that in his opening words, uh, let me give you a couple of paragraphs that Piper opens this up. And, it, and you say, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with these men who had a great love for Christ, but they were hated. Um, he says, indeed, knowing and loving the truth of Christ is not only pleasant now, it is the only path to everlasting life and joy. That's why Athanasius, who lived from 298 to 373, John Owen, who lived from 1616 to 1683, and J. Gresham Machen, 1881 to 1937, took so seriously the controversies of their time. Uh, it was not what they liked, but it was what love required. Love for Christ and his church and his world. In every age, Piper says, there is a kind of person who tries to minimize the importance of truth-defining and truth-defending controversy by saying that prayer, worship, evangelism, missions, and dependence on the Holy Spirit are more important. Let's stop arguing about the gospel and get out there and share it with a dying world. Or, prayer is more powerful than argument. Or, we should rely on the Holy Spirit and not on our reasoning. Or, God wants to be worshipped, not discussed. Some of you guys have come out of churches where there have been doctrinal controversies. There ought to be doctrinal controversies. When, um, when you got guys in a Southern Baptist seminary saying that Paul didn't teach this epistle, yet it says that he did, or that Jonah really wasn't a historical figure, you know what? You started it, man. You drew the line, and you're wrong. And I have no interest in unifying with you. Oh, we're evangelical. You're not evangelical. You don't have the guts to come out and say what you are. There are certain things that are fundamental. Okay. Piper goes on and says this. In Athanasius's in Athanasius' lifelong battle for the deity of Christ against the Arians, and the guy who was the real smooth-talking guy that everybody liked, his name was Arius. And by the way, what Arius taught is still around today in certain cults. They're Arians. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. And see, it threatened to sweep the entire evangelical church back in the day of Athanasius. Uh, his lifelong battle for the deity of Christ against the Arians who said that Christ was created, Athanasius said, considering that this struggle is for our all, let us also make it our earnest care and aim to guard what we have received. When all is at stake, it is worth contending. This is what love does. Sometimes, and a lot of people didn't like Athanasius. They didn't think he was nice. He was a bulldog. He wouldn't relent. He wouldn't recant. So the reason I'm saying this to you guys is a lot of times when it says there, you know, act like men, da, 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 let everything you do be done in love, it doesn't always mean that you get along. It doesn't always mean that you're real nice, does it? Although we hear this constantly. 
Now, should we be troublemakers? Should we be looking for trouble? Should we be looking for a fight? Looking to, no. No, that's, that's going to the other extreme. That's that whole machismo thing. That's, that's not biblical. Not at all. He goes on. You guys still with me? Is this making any sense? Some of you guys know about Charles Finney. Charles Finney was the guy that kind of got the second great awakening going in America. Uh, Finney, uh, a lot of people like Finney. Finney had some real problems and some real issues. Uh, Piper says, Finney, who broke with his Presbyterian background, was unorthodox both in his method and theology. Following the theologians of New England, he held a governmental view of the atonement, whereby Christ's death was a public demonstration of God's willingness to forgive sins rather than payment for sin itself. Finney did not believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, you got a whole group of churches that are new, all this, called the Emerging Church, and a lot of the key guys in the Emerging Church don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Not all of them. I'm saying some of the key guys. And those guys say, well, let's just all get along. I'm sorry, I'm not getting along with you. If you deny that Christ died as my substitute, as a propitiation for my sins, as a satisfaction, we got an issue. A big-time issue. So, listen to this. So Finney, and he's Finney sweeping the country, just sweeping it. This kind of theology was bound to meet opposition. One example of that controversy can be seen by observing Finney's relationship with his contemporaries, Asa Hell Nettleton and Lyman Beecher. Don't name your kid Asa Hell or Lyman. You'll ruin their life. But that's what these guys were named. Finney was the spokesman for the surging frontier religion, which was both speculative and emotional. Nettleton was the defender of the old New England orthodoxy, of the Word of God. Not the new New England orthodoxy, but the old one, which refused to be shaken from the moorings of the past. Lyman Beecher was a congregational pastor in Boston and shared Nettleton's historic Calvinistic views. Some of you guys, that bothers you. Just throw out Calvin and put in Bible, Okay. Both these men had fruitful ministries, and Nettleton's itinerant evangelism was blessed with so many conversions that Francis Whalen, an early president of Brown University, said, I suppose no minister of his time was the means of so many conversions. He would sway an audience as the trees of the forest are moved by a mighty wind. And he taught the Bible. Now stay with me. The controversy between Finney on the one hand and Nettleton and Beecher on the other was so intense that a meeting was called in New Lebanon, New York in 1827 to work out the differences. Numerous concerned clergy came from both the Finney and the Beecher side. It ended without reconciliation, and Beecher said to Finney, catch this, Finney, I know your plan, I, and you know I do. You mean to come to Connecticut and carry a streak of fire to Boston, but if you attempt it as the Lord lives, I'll meet you at the state line, I'll call out the artillerymen and fight every inch of the way to Boston, and then I'll fight you there. He wasn't a feminized man. Now, did he love controversy? No. But sometimes, and can I say to you what this guy did? Fit 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. I think he did the loving thing. He stood for the word of God. Isn't that what Joshua and Caleb did against the ten spies? They did the loving thing. The people are panicked. Let's go back to Egypt. And what do they do? They said, hey, hey, wait a minute. God will fight for us. Did he not just do this and this and this? He brought us through the Red Sea. He got us here. You, are, you, are you saying God can't take these giants? What they did was done in love. We don't know. Hey, we're not looking for controversy. We're not looking for a fight. That's not Christian men. That's not what Christian men do. But when, but when the lines are drawn, Martin Luther said this. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. When the battle, uh, I'll take it back, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point of controversy. And that's how Luther lived his life. 
So Christian manhood and Christian masculinity, when we look at, when we look at Joshua, when we look at Caleb, when, when we look at Paul, when we look at Jesus, we talked about Jesus last week. And see, again, the whole feminization thing, this whole perversion of what it means to be a man. So we take kindness and gentleness and tenderness, and we say those traits are more important than boldness and aggressiveness and courage. It's better to be kind than it is to be courageous. No. If the situation calls for kindness, be kind. If it calls for courage, be courageous. What happens is we get confused, and when we're supposed to be courageous, we get tender. Um, And sometimes when we're supposed to be tender, we get hard. Masculinity is bringing the appropriate trait to bear at the appropriate time. My friend Stu Weber, and whenever I speak with Stu and I introduce him, uh, Stu's a pastor in Oregon, some of you guys know Stu. Uh, he, he was Special Forces, Green Beret, decorated in Vietnam. Whenever I introduce Stu, I say, Stu knows 17 different ways to kill you. Because he does. He really does. But the interesting thing about Stu, Stu can go into a group of guys, and in about 20 minutes, he can figure out the guy in the room with the broken heart. You know why? I'm going to tell you something. Stu Weber's a warrior. He's a warrior. But he's a tender warrior. See, he's got, there's that balance. It was said of Abraham Lincoln, and we're hearing a lot these days about Abraham Lincoln. But, but one of his biographers described Lincoln as velvet steel. That's good. You see the balance? That's, that's what we're looking for. Um, we ought to be different. We ought to be different. We ought to be different in our homes. We ought to be different in our faith. We ought to be different on how we live our lives. Now, what's the controversy that's going on today? We got all kinds of controversies going on today. I've been reading David Jeremiah's new book, What in the World is Going On? This is a great book on prophecy. I quoted from it last week. David has a section in here that is remarkable to me. And allow me to, uh, allow me to give you a quote. Because every age has its controversy and every age has its issues. But sometimes we don't immediately see them. Uh, Jeremiah says this, George Seda was an Air Force general under Saddam Hussein. Though ethnically an Iraqi, he was not a Muslim, but an Assyrian Christian. He refused to join the Ba'athist party under Saddam, which blocked his ascent into the ranks of power. But he was a military hero, Iraq's top Air Force pilot. And the man Saddam called on to hear the truth about military matters because Saddam knew his yes-men would tell him only what he wanted to hear. In his book, Saddam's Secrets, how an Iraqi general defied and survived Saddam Hussein, Sada speaks about the spreading impact of Islam around the world. He says, I am often asked about militant Islam and the threat of global terrorism. More than once I've been asked about the meaning of the Arabic words Fatah and Jihad. What I normally tell them is that to followers of the militant brand of Islam, these doctrines express the belief that Allah has commanded them to conquer the nations of the world, both by cultural invasion and by the sword. In some cases, this means moving thousands of Muslim families into a foreign land by building mosques and changing the culture from the inside out and by refusing to assimilate or adopt the beliefs or values of that nation to conquer the land for Islam. Uh, This is an invidious doctrine, but it's being carried out in some places today by followers of this type of Islam. He goes on and says, they won't be stopped by appeasement. They are not interested in political solutions. They don't want welfare. Their animosity is not caused by hunger or poverty or anything of the sort. They understand only one thing, total and complete conquest of the West and of anyone who does not bow to them and their dangerous and out-of-date ideology of hate and revenge. And then he goes on and says this. Now, is this every Muslim? No. But the Wahhabi Muslims, it's true of. He goes on and says this. And can I still say these things? Is this still America? Yeah, it is. So while I can say them, I'm going to say them. Because I'm not sure how much longer I can say them. Uh, Jeremiah talks about something that recently happened in San Diego where he pastors. 
Traditionally, in the United States, Arabic language courses have been taught only at universities, mosques, and Islamic schools, but that has recently changed. In September 2006, Carver Elementary School, a publicly financed K-8 school in San Diego, absorbed into its enrollment about 100 students from a defunct charter school serving mostly Somali Muslims. To accommodate the special religious customs of the Muslim children, the administration formed, in effect, an Islamic school within an American school. Accommodations included adding courses in the Arabic language, modifying the cafeteria menu in accordance with Islamic dietary restrictions, providing gender-separated classes, and establishing an afternoon recess allowing for the Islamic prayer specified for that time of day, all at an additional cost to the school district of $450,000. Just when Carver was becoming comfortable with this arrangement, a substitute teacher observed that the afternoon Muslim prayer was being led by an employee of the school district. The sub reported the apparent indoctrination of students to Islam at a public session of the school board. Investigations began into the accommodations and the apparent double standard that bans Christianity from public institution and yet accommodates an organized attempt to push public conformance with Islamic law. I got so much stuff here, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, recently the Archbishop of Canterbury said that we ought to incorporate English uh, uh, Sharia law into the law of England. And do you know that there are areas now in London where Sharia law rules? Oh, by the way, you know what Sharia law is? Sharia law says if your wife doesn't do what you say, you can cut off her head. There's a difference between Christianity and Islam. You know, guys, we're living in interesting times. And we're living in times that are a little bit disconcerting. Um, if there's ever a time that we need men to be Christian men, if there's ever a time when we need men who love Christ and are willing to stand for Christ and are willing... Sometimes guys get frustrated. And guys, I understand this. They see, they see the breakdown. Is America different? Is it different? Is it changing? Yeah. Does it concern you? Yeah. I mean, if you're a thinker, it does. Because you know that ideas have consequences, and you see, you see that certain ideas, when implemented, take us down a road that there probably is no returning from that course. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. And I'll have conversations. Yeah, what, 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 what is happening? What's going on? You know, I think to really understand what's going on, you've got you to read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter. There's something going on right now in our country. Uh, last night, I, uh, I listened again to John MacArthur's sermon that he preached at a prayer breakfast in Colorado Springs two years ago. And the title of it is, God Has Abandoned America. It's just Romans 1.18 right down through. It's worth downloading. It's worth listening to. Because you see, in Romans 1.18, it talks about a breakdown. It talks about a breakdown that happens with individuals. And it happens in nations when the vast majority of individuals within the nations deny that God exists and deny that God is real. You know, when you were a little kid, you just wanted to have your own way, didn't you? It's kind of funny because now you're an old guy and you still want to have your own way. Isn't that funny how it works? We, we want to do it our way. We want to do it our way. We want to do it our way. When you read Romans 1, 18, down to the end of the chapter, do you know the worst thing that can ever happen to you is for God to give you over to doing it your own way? That's called the wrath of God, and it's called the judgment of God. And when that happens in a nation, it's not good. It has happened in nations before. Uh, when we study Toynbee and the rise and fall of great nations, there is this cycle that nations go through. 
And we know that we're on the wrong side of the cycle. That's why we're concerned about our children. That's why we're concerned about our kids, our grandkids. You look at all this stuff, you know, uh, why is there a double standard? Why can't, see, there's no room for, for the name of Jesus in the school, but there's room for Allah. Things have gotten, what is going on? What is this stuff? You know, if you, if, if, if you gave money in California because you thought marriage ought to be between a man and a wife, period, do you know if you gave money, a judge has said, no, that's, that's open public information, and you should not be surprised if you get death threats or if you're, the air is let out of your tires because you supported that? This, this is what's happening. This is the path we're going down. And what it causes us to do is it causes us to get very, very concerned. And can I say to you guys, this is another giant. Stuff is happening in this nation that to us is unthinkable. We take what's good and we call it bad and we take what is bad and we call it good. One of the things that you read about in Romans 1 is not just homosexuality, but you read about lesbianism. The rise of lesbianism is a sign that a nation has reached a point where God is giving them over. My gosh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So once again, we got to think, and we got to think biblically. Now, I, I wish I could... How you guys doing? Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> you, you know this is true, don't you? You sense it. You see it. You're concerned about it. All right, let me ask you something. How would Joshua and Caleb have handled this? What do you think? How would men in the Bible that we admire, how would they handle this? Prayer. Prayer? Yeah, that's, that's certainly one thing they'd be doing. You bet. I, I, as, as we close this out tonight, I want us to go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because we are living in very, very difficult times. And we're living in times. I don't see a lot of encouragement out there. Do you? There's not, there's not a lot of stuff out there that makes you think, hey, this is temporary. It's going to be turned around. It's, uh, we, we, we know it's not temporary. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is talking to young Timothy, and Timothy was a timid guy. Timothy was a guy that liked to get along. He didn't like conflict. He didn't like difficulty. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of cowardice or a spirit of fear. Uh, you know, guys, sometimes I'm tempted not to talk about this stuff. But I think to not talk about it is crazy because we're all sensing it. Um, I, I told you a few weeks ago that I find myself, and I used a term I probably shouldn't have used, but I'll just use the term PO'd, if you know what that term means. I find myself getting that way a lot because it seems like every time I look around, I see something that's wrong and it gets me upset. And then I get concerned because I think, well, if they're doing that, then it's going to be here before you know it. And I see consequences and a nation can't continue like this. And so I, I get intense and I get concerned and I think about my kids. And I don't even have grandkids, but I think about my grandkids. And see, that's how you guys are. How do we face this? How do we handle this? Second Timothy 1. Because we're men and we're leaders. And, and you know what? As we go, so goes our families. As we go, so goes our church. As we go, so goes our community. So how do we face this stuff? Um, it's not 1955 anymore. It's not Father Knows Best. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's not Fred McMurray and my three sons. It, it's not... Everything's changed, guys. How do we handle this? I guess my question is, how do, you, how do you keep from getting depressed? That's my question. Well, he's going to tell us. 
One, God has not given us a spirit of fear or of cowardice. Uh, I have been talking all the way through this study on the giants. I've been talking about fear. Why have I been talking about fear? Because there are fearful things out there. Throughout the Bible, God says, fear not. Why does he keep saying fear not? Because there's all this stuff that's frightening, that scares us, that's out of our control. And so much of being a Christian man is fighting off fear. God has not given me a spirit of fear. So I look at this, and I look at this, and I read the Sharia law, and I go, oh my gosh, and my kids and my grandkids, and and I'm tsunamied like that sucker on the beach. Can that not happen? Just a quiet day, and you're just walking, and you got time to think, and you think, oh, what if that happened? Oh my gosh, what if that happened? It'll carry you away. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He does not want us fearful. But, look at this, but of power. Power. Where does power come from? Jesus said in Acts 1-9 that you should receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power of the Holy Spirit is unfathomable. And we look and we see things and we see this and you know what and you know what happens? We look at we look at these giants and we get intimidated. But once again, guys, I hate to be a broken record. As we're going through life as Christian guys, we've got to think. And I emphasized this again last week, and a guy came up to me afterwards and he said, I have problems with it. you said so much of the Christian life is thinking. And you said faith is thinking. I said, That's right. He goes, well, I always thought faith was believing God and his word. I said, You're exactly right. He said, well, you said it was thinking. I said, let me ask you something. Actually, I had two guys say that to me last week. And to one of them, I said, all right, you believe God in his word. How do you believe God? He goes, well, I said, how do you believe? You got to think about what God has said. Thinking and belief are not isolated. Thinking and belief are together in the process. Is that not right? You got to think about what God says, and then you believe it, and then you keep moving. And so this might happen in this. Yes, but you can never forget the power of God. The power of God. When, when, when things break down, when you look at Israel and Judah, things broke down. They were taken into captivity. Daniel and his buddies were taken into captivity. And I'm sure his parents and grandparents were concerned, oh, what about young Daniel? God had a plan for Daniel's life. God has a plan for your kids. God has a plan for your grandkids. And he's going to, they're going to need to be people of power. See, we can't get overwhelmed. We've got to look at the power of God. He's not giving me a spirit of fear, but that of power. You never know when God's going to come through or how he's going to come through. Have any of you guys ever had God come through for you at the last minute unexpectedly when you thought all was lost? Yeah, raise your hand. You can do that here. I had a guy say to me one time, he said, over at Stonebriar, if you're raising your hand, you better be asking a question. (laughs) That's pretty good, I thought. That's not true, but anyway. You can raise your hand. You've seen God come through for you. You can't forget his power. Then look at this. God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but a power and, watch this, love. I find that interesting. Love. Because back in 1 Corinthians 16, he says everything I'm to do is supposed to be controlled by love. Well, where do I get my love? I get love from understanding the love of my Father. You, you know, most, not most of us, all of us here, you know what our problem is? We don't understand how much God loves us. We, we're always thinking that we, we we're, we're always thinking he's mad at us, he's angry at us. He's all, and, and by the way, if you're in continual sin as a believer and you're not listening to the Holy Spirit, you know what, because he loves you, he's going to discipline you. He's not going to let you get away with it. So he's going to take down your jockeys, and he's going to whip your rear end. Just like my dad used to do with me, but the motivation is love. It's love. We forget about how, we get worried and all this and all this, you know, oh gosh, what's, we forget the love of God. God knows what's going on. By the way, does God have a plan for the ages? Does God, is there biblical prophecy? You guys ever get the charts out and the dispensational thing and look at the, you know? You ever look at that? 
You get all excited about it? Well, part of that is bad stuff that is in God's plan. But when bad stuff happens and nations break down, there's always a group of people that God takes care of. Is that not true? You know what they're called? Baptist. They're called the remnant. They're called the remnant. The guys that love him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. God knows who his guys are, and he takes care of his guys. Because he loves them. Hey, you know what? God loves men. Do you know that? He made you to be a man. He wants you to be manly. He doesn't want you to be a hard guy or a tough guy, but he wants you to be a man. Dad Gummit, you're going to stand if nobody else stands. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You want to cut off my head? Then cut off my head, bozo. But I'm not denying Christ. And that's where we're going and what it's going to take before long. I'm not saying when. I'm saying it's probably coming. And by the way, that's part of God's plan. Because you read Revelation about the martyrs, and they're saying, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? He says, well, there are more martyrs that haven't died yet. Do you know that God has predestined some to be martyrs and die for the faith? And God will give them the grace that they need when the moment comes. Oh, and by the way, look at the last one. God's not given us a spirit of timidity or fear or cowardice, but of power and love and some translations say discipline. But the idea here is, but of power and love and catch this. Sound thinking. That's how you make it. That's how you fight off fear. You take the word of God. You take the truth of God. Some of you guys buy my CDs. Can I make a recommendation? Don't ever buy another CD I do. Because I'm pretty much convinced every week I'm saying the same thing. (laughs) Really. I just say it in different ways. I'm saying it's fearful, I'm saying it's scary, and the only way you're going to make it is to think about God and who he is and what he has promised, and that's how you keep peace in your heart and you keep mentally healthy and you don't fall apart. That's pretty much what I've been saying for three months. But you know what? I find myself having to practice this just about every day. I'm I'm not just saying it. I find myself having to live this. Live it. Because I'll be honest with you. As I see what's going on, I get more and more disturbed. So where do I get my equilibrium? And where do I get peace? And where do I get joy? By sound thinking. And then acting on what God has said and trusting him with my life. And trusting his promises, not only for me, but for my children, my grandchildren. And you know what? That's how I have peace. And that's how I can enjoy my family. Has not God been good to us? So, you know, let me give you a recommendation. Because this stuff's all true. Instead of getting all freaked out and fearful, you know what? Go home and eat some bluebell. (laughs) And I'll tell you what. Eat some bluebell. Watch a little sports. I don't know. And go have a quiet time with your wife. You know what I mean? Hey, go enjoy your wife sexually. Can I say that in here? Dad, gummit, I just said it. God's been good to us, hasn't he? Let's be thankful. We don't have to be afraid. He's running the show. We're his guys. He's going to make a way. He's going to take care of us. Of all men on the earth, we're most blessed. Are we not? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. These are perilous times. These are frightening times. But the joy of the Lord is my strength. I don't know a lot about that, but would you help me to learn more and more about it, Lord, as I think biblically?
about my life and what's going on. I pray for every guy in this room tonight that will be able to sleep and rest. I pray that you would dismiss fear from us and that we would refuse to fear tonight. Refuse it. Absolutely refuse it. That would be my prayer for us tonight. We could wake up refreshed tomorrow because in the morning, those new mercies are going to be waiting for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.